Father, thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts, that you would give us instruction, Lord, when it comes to the practical issues of getting along with each other, of being able to resolve conflicts and being able to be at peace and unity with each other. Give us grace, Lord, to find help from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a story of two porcupines that were up in the freezing north woods. And they were huddling together to keep warm because it was so cold. But the only problem was that when they got too close to each other, their quills pricked each other. And so they had to separate from each other. So they needed each other, but at the same time, they needled each other. And that's a lot like us sometimes as Christians. We do need each other. But when we get close to each other, a lot of times we find we, we actually prick each other and can wound and hurt each other. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, because here in Acts chapter 15, 36 to 41, we're going to see two of the most saintly men we know of in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, having a very sharp disagreement, so sharp that they ended up separating. They couldn't work together after this point in their ministry. Because the church is made up of fallen human beings, there's no perfect church. Our, the bridge is not a perfect church, not by any means. But there's not even a perfect Christian in any church. <laughs> we are all uh, fallen. We, we've all received the effects of the fall. We're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. It's a lifelong struggle to put to death the deeds of the body. And that is reflected in all of our churches throughout the world. We are all a work in progress. We're all seeking to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But folks, it isn't easy to do that. Sometimes it can be very difficult to do that. But let's take a look at this story here in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So I just want to ask a few questions about this whole situation this morning and seeing if, if we can get some answers. Number one, who was involved in the disagreement? Number two, who is right and who is wrong in this disagreement? Three, what was the outcome of the disagreement? Okay, so first of all, who was involved? Well, verse 36 says it was Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas were involved. Now that to me is fascinating because we do know quite a bit about these two men. First of all, we know that they both shared the same theology. They were co-teachers in the church at Antioch. For a year, they taught the disciples. And I imagine it wasn't a, a weekly meeting on Sunday. Probably every night of the week, there's teaching going on. These new Christians are being fed the word of God. So they're co-teachers in the same church. Then they went on a mission together. And they were preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. So they were co-ministers together. And then when there's a threat on the, uh, the teaching on salvation by grace alone by the Judaizers, 
Paul and Barnabas are of one mind on that. They go down to Jerusalem and they stand up in the midst of the apostles and the elders and they share with them about the signs and the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles during their first missionary journey. So these guys were like two peas in a pod. They're theologically tight. They're doctrinally tight. Not only that, they were friends. Do you remember who it was that helped uh, Paul get into the church there in Jerusalem? They wanted nothing to do with Paul originally because he had a, a reputation of killing Christians. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him by the hand and brought him and introduced him into the church and he was finally welcomed. So these guys were friends. They were co-laborers. They were tight when it came to their theology. They agreed together about the truth that they were presenting. Uh, secondly, they both had labored together for Christ for many years now, not just for a short period of time, but for many years. And then thirdly, they were both absolutely committed to Christ. We're told that as a result of the council in Acts 15, a letter was generated that was to be read in all the Gentile churches. And part of that letter said that Paul and Barnabas had risked their lives for the sake of the churches. So both of them had risked their lives. They had faced an irate sorcerer on the island of Cyprus, they faced these mobs that were trying to lynch them. <laughs> uh, Paul was actually stoned, and they thought he'd, he had died, although he didn't. God raised him up. But that's the kind of uh, persecution that they faced, and they both faced it together, but they didn't stop. They didn't give up. They were both absolutely committed to serving the Lord. So we don't have two enemies disagreeing here. We have two very close friends that are having a disagreement, such a sharp disagreement, that they end up going their separate ways as a result. So if Paul and Barnabas could have such a strong disagreement between them, folks, same thing could happen to you and us. And we just need to be forewarned about that, to know that's a real possibility. And maybe we can get some help from the Word of God so that we can face that situation the way the Lord would have us to, rather than make a lot of mistakes, sinful mistakes, that, that's never a good thing, but it, it does happen all too often in churches. So that's who is involved. The second question is, who is right and who is wrong in this disagreement? Well, I think there's a sense in which both men were right, and there's also a sense in which both men were wrong. So let's go to the first one. There is a sense, I think, in which both men were right, because Paul was right in that he was a brave and bold warrior for Christ. Paul was unwavering, he was uncompromising in his commitment to do the will of God. He didn't flinch in the face of danger, even if stoning, they stoned him, he got back up and went right back into the city where he was stoned. I mean, this guy was unbelievably brave when it came to following Jesus and doing his will. And Paul, I think, felt that he needed other men on his missionary team with the same character. And John Mark didn't measure up. Because in the thick of their first missionary journey, he deserted them. That's what it actually says, I think, in verse 39. I forget the verse. But anyway, it says that he deserted them. Verse 38. He forsook the missionary team, and he went back to Jerusalem, where that was his hometown. And Paul says, no, we're not taking him. We're only taking men of proven character with us. And he has proved that he doesn't have proven character. He's not coming. So there was some things that we could say about that, that, yeah, Paul, you do have a point. He didn't measure up. He did fail the test on the first journey. I think Paul was a guy who was focused on the mission 
You know, you have two types of people, basically. You've got goal-oriented people, and you've got people-oriented people. I personally tend to be more of the goal-oriented type. My wife can vouch for that. And I know some of the else in this church, you tend to be really people-oriented. So Barnabas is a people-oriented guy. Paul's a goal-oriented guy. God gave us this mission. We're going to carry it out. And we're not taking anybody that's going to slow us down or jeopardize the mission. He's out. We're getting somebody else. So that was Paul's attitude. Barnabas's attitude, on the other hand, was he's the son of encouragement. Barnabas wanted to be gracious and patient with John Mark. He says, hey, he, he deserves a second chance. All of us have failed. Come on, let's bring him along. We, we can disciple him. We can help him to produce godly character. Let's just bring him along in the second journey, and he's going to learn, and he's going to be better for it. He could have quoted scriptures like, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord's patient with us, right, Paul? Shouldn't we be patient and gracious and compassionate with others? So there's, there is a right side of all of that too, right? We have scripture both, on both sides. Both men could produce scripture to support how they felt about this particular issue. Barnabas is focused on the man. Paul's focused on the mission. Barnabas is focused on restoring his nephew to ministry and usefulness to the Lord. So Paul's goal Accomplish the mission. Barnabas' goal, restore John Mark. Now here they run into a situation in which these two goals collide. Paul felt it would jeopardize the mission if they took John Mark. Barnabas felt he couldn't seek the restoration of his nephew if he didn't take John Mark. So now you've got this impasse. What are they going to do? And that's where this sharp disagreement took place. Something had to give. So I think there is a sense in which both men were right, but I think there's also a sense in which both men were wrong. Paul was so focused on the mission that he didn't consider John Mark's growth and discipleship and sanctification as important enough to give him a second chance. And Barnabas is so focused on John Mark that he was willing to allow the mission to potentially suffer by bringing him along. You see that there is both strengths and there is both weaknesses in each man's position on this issue. It's not like one guy is totally right and the other guy is totally wrong. You get my point? There, there, there is good and bad in both. In 1 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says that love is not provoked. Now that word provoked, it's a verb form of a Greek word. And if you take that Greek verb and make it a noun, it's the word here for sharp disagreement. So Paul said, love is not provoked, but yet Paul and Barnabas were provoked by each other. So that leads me to believe that there was some sinful anger. This wasn't all pure and godly and holy. There was probably raised voices going on, maybe a little bit of yelling. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, this is a sharp, this wasn't a, just a, a tiny little, you have your position, I have mine. No, there was a very sharp disagreement. So sharp that, hey, I can't work with you anymore because of this. So Paul says that love does not do what he and Barnabas did. They provoked each other. Both stubbornly dug in their heels and were unwilling to concede to the other person. Right? That's what I see going on here. They were unwilling to really consider the truthfulness that the other person had 
about their position. Each one of them felt like they were right and the other one was wrong. And so the narrative to me doesn't sound like they showed mutual respect and love and courtesy and decided to disagree agreeably, which would be the best possible scenario. I don't think that's going on here. I think this is, is a bigger disagreement than that. Now I think we need to remember something here. A person's strength can also become their weakness. So what is Paul's strength? I think it's his unwavering commitment to serve Christ no matter the cost. Unwavering commitment. Paul was absolutely determined, a driven man, to do the will of God. He even publicly confronted Peter, who was like the spokesman of all the apostles. Now here's Paul, a Johnny-come-lately as an apostle. He's, he's rebuking Peter publicly, Galatians chapter 2. So that tells you what kind of a man he was. He, he was the kind of guy who if you were doing wrong, he was going to get in your face about it. So this unswerving commitment to follow Christ all the way. But that also became his weakness. Paul wasn't a coward in any sense. He was driven, he was committed, yet I think that could become his weakness because here he's unwilling to even consider that perhaps the Lord might want him to continue to work with John Mark. But yet he's got such a, an unswerving, uncompromising commitment to the mission that he's not even going to consider that possibility. Now Barnabas' strength, I think, was his ability to lift up the weak and the faint-hearted and the underdog. He was just one of those guys that loved people. And if you were in, in pain or suffering, he was by your side. He was the one that brought Paul in when Paul was rejected by the whole church. And he, he was the underdog then and he pulled Paul into the church. So here's this son of encouragement. That's his strength. He's good at showing grace. He's good at showing compassion to those who had failed. Yet I think that strength can become his weakness because he failed to confront Peter. When, when Paul did not fail to do it, Barnabas did fail. When, Paul, when Peter was living in hypocrisy, he left Paul to do that difficult job and in fact, Barnabas was carried away, it says, by their hypocrisy. So the, I think the lesson for us is we need to ask ourselves, well, what is my strength? Maybe your strength is biblical discernment. Let's say that's your strength. You're able to discern what the Bible actually means. Be careful, because that strength may lead you to become judgmental. Maybe your strength is you are really good at accepting other people, just an accepting, welcoming person. Be careful, because your weakness could become being overly tolerant and accepting sinful behavior, or not taking serious doctrinal error seriously. We, we can become so accepting and so welcoming that we don't confront sin when it's there and we don't confront doctrinal error when it presents itself. So these, you just have to know your strength because the flip side of your strength is going to be your weakness and we need to be aware of that. So bottom line, who is right and who is wrong? Well that's a really difficult question to answer. But when all things are considered, I think Paul probably has a slight edge on being more in the right. And I say that because verse 39 it says, there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, 
But Paul chose Silas and left, and here's the part I want you to think on, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So the church in Antioch committed Paul and Silas to the work of the Lord. There's nothing said about the church committing Paul or Barnabas and John Mark to the work of the Lord. So the, the church seems to be backing Paul and Silas, sending them out, committing them to the grace of the Lord. It's just silent about what happens with Barnabas and John Mark. Uh, so if you had to choose one, maybe we don't need to choose one or the other, but there does seem to be a little bit of a slight edge. The church really seems to be backing Paul in the situation. Okay, let's, let's find out what the outcome was of this disagreement. What's the result of this whole thing? Well, actually, it's actually a good thing. You might be surprised to hear that. But what do we have? What Satan means for evil, God turns it around and means it for good. So we have a, a doubling of evangelistic ministry taking place. You no longer have just one team, one missionary team. You've got two of them. And they're in two different places, reaching twice as many people as they used to in the same amount of time. <laughs> And so God has just taken something that looked really bad and turned it around and he's produced something really good because Barnabas and John Mark become this new team and John Mark actually flourishes under his, his uh, uncle's ministry. We're going to find out later that John Mark becomes a very strong and helpful servant of the Lord in time. So Barnabas is just the guy to take John Mark under his wing and they take off to Cyprus, which is Barnabas's hometown. And Paul and Silas, they take off and go back to where they just came from. And Silas flourishes under Paul's ministry. So you've got this really good effect taking place of an initially bad situation. We also find the relationships between these men, which at one time were really stretched to the limit, are restored. We find that because in Colossians 4.10, when Paul writes to the Colossians, he tells them to welcome Mark when he comes. Now, if, if he was still sore at Mark, he would never put that in his letter to the Colossians. So they had been restored by this time. We also find in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul writes, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. This is Paul at the end of his life. He's in a prison cell in Rome, and he says, bring Mark with you. He's useful to me for service. So he saw the value in John Mark's spiritual walk with the Lord about how he was useful to service. And not only that, in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he wrote, do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Now he wrote Corinthians after this situation we're studying this morning. So later on, when he writes to the Corinthians, he talks about how both he and Barnabas have a right to refrain from working and to receive offerings from God's people. He, he links Barnabas on the same level as himself, as a co-laborer in the gospel. And he says Barnabas has a right to refrain from working. And in other words, he's, he's speaking about him positively and supportively. So all things indicate that there may have been a quick eruption of anger but we find a, a restoration of relationships here. It, this eruption didn't permanently separate them into two different camps or they couldn't talk to each other. There is this restoration that takes place. And all of this goes to show the truth of Romans 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good 
to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. God brought good things out of this. So let's see if we can discern some practical truths and practical lessons from this whole situation this morning. First one is we need to distinguish, I think, between two different types of Christian unity. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul mentions two kinds of unity. He mentions unity that's a result of a shared life and unity that's a result of shared light, L-I-G-H-T. So the first one is in Ephesians 4.3 where he writes and he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Later he's going to say in Ephesians 4.13, he's going to speak about the unity of the faith. The unity of the spirit, the unity of the faith. When he talks about the unity of the spirit, he says, preserve it. Well that means it's already there. You can't preserve something that's not present. Preserve means to keep it. Don't create it. Keep it. It's already there. And I believe what Paul is saying is that all born-again believers have a spiritual unity because they're all indwelt by the same Spirit. They already have this spiritual unity, the unity of the Spirit. Now you need to work hard to preserve the unity that's already been given to you. You see? So there's a shared life. Whenever you find any Christian any truly saved person on the planet, you already have a spiritual unity, the unity of the Spirit between yourself and them. That's, that's not the second kind, that's the first kind of unity. The second kind is shared light. And in Ephesians 4.13, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now notice, until we attain to it, it means we haven't attained to it. We have attained to the unity of the Spirit. That happened when you were born again, but this one we haven't attained to yet. This one is not the unity of the Spirit, it's the unity of the faith, and it consists of the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge. Not the Spirit dwelling in all people to create a spiritual unity, but a knowledge of the Son of God, and that results in a unity of the faith, a body of doctrine that is taught in the Word of God and is to be believed by God's people and passed down from generation to generation. So you can possess the unity of the Spirit and not possess the unity of the faith. In other words, we could go to China and we could be totally at odds on some theological issues, not core issues, but peripheral issues, but yet we still share the unity of the Spirit with those people because they've been born of the Spirit. That actually did happen to us in 2008. We, beautiful shared spiritual unity. I remember riding in a train from one place to another and we were singing worship songs with our Chinese uh, brother and sister. They didn't know how to sing them in English and we didn't know how to sing them in Chinese. So we sang in our own languages, but like, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And we were singing these songs together. And we just, yeah, we had spiritual unity. We love the same Lord. We were all indwelt by the same spirit. But yet it came, and I was supposed to be doing some teaching to the underground church, and I got to Romans 9 and started to talk about the sovereignty of God, and they shut me down, and they said, you can't talk about that. We don't believe that in this church. So we didn't have the unity of the faith, but we did have the unity of the Spirit. So it is possible. We can have shared life with other believers, but not shared light. And so until we do experience the unity of the faith... We're all seeking to attain that. 
We need to be patient with those that disagree with us and gracious toward them. We're not talking here about core salvation issues like whether Jesus is God or not or whether a person is saved by grace or works. Those are not the issues I'm talking about here. We're talking here about core salvation issues. If we agree on the core, then the peripheral issues that we don't agree on, we need to try to be patient and gracious and compassionate towards one another because we're all at different places. And maybe we can be a help. If the Lord has given us a little bit more light in some area than somebody else, maybe God will use us to help them. So keep that in mind. And maybe God will use them to help us as well. We need to be humble enough to consider that. So that's the first lesson. We just need to know there's two types of unity and distinguish between those. Secondly, we shouldn't let disagreements cause us to stop serving the Lord. Paul and Barnabas didn't let this disagreement stop them from serving Christ. Barnabas kept serving as a missionary. Paul kept serving as a missionary. They weren't going to give up and say, hey, I've been wounded. I'm going to go nurse my wounds and I'm leaving the church and I'm never going back. But sadly, that does happen. I've known people. They get wounded in church and they just stop going for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And it's, that's a very sad thing. So determine that even you probably are going to have disagreements with people in the church. It's going to happen. But determine that you are not going to allow that to affect your relationship with Christ. That you're going to keep serving him come what may. Let's not be quick to run away. Or more importantly, stay away from the body of Christ because of some issue that has come up. Okay, thirdly, in a disagreement, we should seek to affirm areas of agreement. And this isn't just for disagreements that happen in the church. This can be any kind of relationship that you have. It can be in your marriage or with your children or people on your job. These are actually good positive principles that we can take and apply. So in a disagreement, seek to affirm areas of agreement. Usually in an honest disagreement amongst Christians, both parties are going to have some biblical truth on their side. Paul could have said, no man after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And he would have been right. Jesus did say that, right? And Barnabas could have said, Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great and loving kindness. Now, did one guy have all the truth and the other guy have none? No, they both could quote scripture for their position. So what, wouldn't it have been good for Paul to say, you know, Barnabas, that's true. I see your point. The Bible does say that about God and we should be the same way. And wouldn't it have been great if Barnabas said, Paul, you know, you're right. Jesus did say that. And somehow we've got to include that into our decision here. Not sure what it should be, but I, I'm willing to listen to what you're saying. But they weren't. They weren't willing to listen to each other. And that's, I think, where the problem came. Also, we don't read in verse 41, Paul was traveling through Syria and Cilicia telling all the churches how wrong Barnabas was. <laughs> instead it says he went around strengthening the churches I don't think he was going gossiping and slandering Barnabas he was, his intent was to build up the church now don't you know some of the people in the church would say hey where's Barnabas he was with you last time 
That could have been a little awkward for Paul, right? He would have had to think of a gracious way to say, well, he's, the Lord is leading him in a different direction right now. And that would have been true. He didn't have to go into all the dirty details and air their dirty laundry, right? So there's no indication that Paul and Barnabas became these rivals forever and they competed with each other in their ministry, which is a very ungodly thing to do anyway. Every time after this in scripture where Paul mentions Barnabas or Mark, he does so in a kind and supportive manner. Debbie and I were raised in a church where if somebody left, you basically had to shun them and you couldn't be friends with them. And if, you, if, if the pastor found out you'd become friends with them or had an ongoing relationship, you'd get a talk from the pastor. From the pulpit. From the pulpit. And we learned, we learned a good lesson back then. The lesson we learned was that Okay, if I ever got into ministry, I don't want to do that. I, I want, if someone does leave, just let them leave. And people did leave at one point from our church in Milpitas, and they ended up coming back. Now, if I had taken the strong position, they never would have come back. Because they would have felt totally and utterly rejected, like they weren't wanted. So I think there's a better way than the, than the way that we learned as young Christians. That was a Christian church? Yeah. Yeah, it had, had its issues and problems. Yeah, we, we believe in Christ. It was, a, it was a Christian church. Yeah, I was, that was my church for the first eight years of my Christian life. Yeah, we could tell you stories for the last couple hours if you want. <laughs> um, so here, here's the thought. If you get into a disagreement, try to humble yourself enough to affirm the truth that you can see that your brother is speaking. Even if you don't think it's the whole truth, maybe it's part of the truth. And at least say, okay, yes, I can see where you're speaking from that scripture. Yes, that is true. I have to deal with that in some way. And hopefully your brother will be humble enough to do the same for you. Now, you may still not be able to fully agree, even after that, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you to have a more godly spirit in trying to resolve the issue. Okay, number four. In a disagreement, we need to conduct ourselves as Christians. <laughs> in, in a disagreement, we need to conduct ourselves as Christians. If the person you disagree with is teaching dangerous false doctrine, you may have to reprove him severely. That's exactly what Paul told Titus to do in Titus 1.13. Reprove them severely. That may happen from time to time. But if, if you have, let, let's, I believe there you had false, false brethren. They weren't even saved. But if you have truly saved people, then it's different. Instead of proving one another severely, I think we need to take a different tact. If we're honest, we have to agree that most of the time our disagreements are not about those kinds of serious doctrinal matters. A lot of the times it's mundane practical issues that we all get upset about. In most cases, if we have the Spirit of Christ, we can agree to disagree agreeably, go, or, you know, go in a different direction, not press each other further, and just experience the peace of God. We might disagree with somebody, we might passionately disagree with somebody, but that doesn't give us the right to be harsh and judgmental and slanderous or call that person names, and that all happens in the church, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't happen. 
we need to seek to, to cultivate a godly, loving, gracious, and respectful spirit. And sometimes that's hard because you can think that guy is dead wrong on that issue. And yet he's so adamant and he's so dogmatic that I'm going to tell him what for. You know, we can have that attitude. But take it to the Lord in prayer before you do it. And Lord, how should I conduct myself in this situation? He's probably going to rebuke you <laughs> if, if that's what you're, gonna, you're intending to do. So in any disagreement, if it's doctrinal, we need to decide up front, is this a peripheral or a core issue? Because that's going to dictate how we will approach it. I mean, if you believe what he believes, does that separate you from Christ? That's a really, really serious thing. Or is this something like he believes that the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation, and I believe it's going to be at the end? Well, who cares? You know, that's not going to affect I mean, I guess it cares, matters to some people, but to me it doesn't really matter very much. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, so I just think we need to be careful to manifest love and grace towards those people we disagree with. That's the bottom line. At the end of the day, the important thing is not that we can prove that we're right and they're wrong. The important thing is that we treat each other with the love and respect that we would want them to treat us with. So that's it. That's what I've learned from this story. Um, let's pray, and then if you have questions or comments, we can dig them out. Lord, we confess our failures. We've done this wrong so many times. <laughs> and we, Lord, I'm sorry. We just seem to be so stubborn, and we get in the flesh, and we, we, we react in the wrong way so often. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord, and we, we ask that you would change us and help us to be prepared, Lord, for these times so that we don't act in an ungodly way. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us. I pray that you'd minister to the, to the minds and hearts of everybody here that's sitting under the teaching and listening to you speak through your word that, Lord, you'd show them how they can apply these things in their own life. In Jesus' name, amen.